My name is Paul Dolan. I'm head of the Department of PBS, Psychological and Behavioural Science, here at the LSE. Um, and you are here not to listen to me for very much longer, but to listen to Steve and Joe talk about their new book, Messengers. Before they um, do their bit, which is that Steve's going to talk for about 20 minutes, it'll feel like it's a lot longer, um, and uh, a lot shorter, sorry, and, and, um, <laughs> and then we're going to have a Q&A session uh, afterwards, then there's going to be a book signing after the event, and a drinks reception for those of you that need a drink after having sweated so much. Um, so I, sh I also have to, I've been under strict instructions, see I've got this thi these things I have to say, I'm, I'm not normally one for formalities but I have to do these things. Um, one is that in the event of an emergency, panic, no, an evacuation message will be played and you make your way to the nearest exits, don't use the lifts, see, I mean honestly, do I, I mean, Sort of messenger. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a very good messenger for safety <laughs> messages, am I? Uh, if you're unable to use the stairs, you should make your way to the nearest fire refuge point. Green signs with white wheelchair image. Um, the other thing to say is that this event is forming part of the Shape the World series. Um, this is held in the run-up to the LSE Festival, which is a week-long series of events taking place from the 2nd to the 7th of March, 2020. Uh, they're free to attend and they're open to all. Um, exploring how social sciences can make the world a better place. Uh, one of the LSE straps lines is for the betterment of society, so that's kind of uh, consistent with that message. Um, and the full programme will be available online from January 2020. All right, good. I think I've done Rebecca, where are you? Have I, have I done everything that you've told me to? Brilliant, thank you. Um, so let me just briefly introduce um, Steve and Joe. Um, that's Steve, that's Joe. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> um, Steve uh, is, shall I read some of this? No. He thinks he's really clever. Um, you know, he's CEO of Influence at Work and together with Noah Goldstein and Rob, Robert Cialdini, um, co-author of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal and Business Week international bestseller, Yes, 50 Secrets for the Science of Persuasion, which to date has sold a million copies and has been translated into 26 languages. Whatever. Um, <laughs> Joe is a PhD student at UCL, focusing on people's perceptions of themselves and how their environment and others influence their cognition and decisions. Um, his research at influence of work has been applied across a variety of business and public policy settings, including financial regulation, healthcare and public transport. Brilliant. It is, all joking aside, it is a great privilege and pleasure to welcome Steve and Joe here this evening to talk about their new book, Messengers. Thank you. Steve, over to you. Good evening, everyone, and thank you very much indeed, Paul, uh, for this very kind introduction and wonderful opportunity to come and speak at the LSE. And I also want to extend Joe and my appreciation to the school itself uh, for putting on this uh, event and to Rebecca. Thank you very much indeed uh, for uh, doing everything. I seem to be... Yeah. Can you still hear me okay at the back? Okay, I'm just going to turn this off if that's okay. Um, I'm glad you can hear me at the back because we're going to be talking about uh, who we listen to. And I guess a good starting point for this is to recognise that we all yeah. like the idea, I think, of being heard more. You know, we like the idea that you know, uh, our friends and family are willing to listen to our point of view. 
that our colleagues at work are willing to listen to an idea or a proposal or a, a proposition that we actually have. And we all recognise that frustration when we're not listened to, when we're not heard. And it's a frustration that can rapidly deteriorate into irritation in those situations and circumstances. And I think most of us in the room will recognize this. You know when you have an idea and you maybe go along to work one day or you go to your colleagues and you tell them about your idea and they look at you in that strange way and they largely dismiss your idea. They say, that's not a good idea. That's not going to work at all. And then something happens. A couple of days later, maybe a couple of weeks later, someone else comes along and says the exact same thing that you've been saying for days. And all of a sudden, that idea that was roundly rejected by your peers, by your colleagues, by your friends, is suddenly enthusiastically embraced when someone else says the exact same thing. The nodding heads in the room suggest that there are plenty of you that have experienced this situation. And it, I think, largely defines this idea of what Joe and I have come to regard as a messenger effect. This idea that often what an audience will listen to, or what people believe, is not so much a function of what is actually being said, but rather a function of who is saying what is being said. <coughs> now, we live now in a world where actual truths, facts, verifiable data is freely available to us. So you would like to think that all of us would be most inclined to listen to those people that tell the truth, that have a good message to deliver, that have some facts and evidence behind what they're actually saying. But we also recognise that in this crazy world that we're actually living in, that's not always the case. There are self-confident ignoramuses out there that are often believed in preference to a considered expert. And we seem to be living now in this world where looking and sounding right appears to be as important, if not even more important, than being right. It seems to me that when we think about who we listen to in society these days, Increasingly, the messenger is the message. The messenger has become the message. I think there's a couple of reasons for this. One of them is this idea that when a messenger delivers a message, something intriguing happens to the audience, to the recipients of that message. Okay. They start to connect the communicator of that message with the content of their message. <coughs> they start to become fused in some way, and we can find it often quite difficult, hard, to separate out messenger from message in that instance. And so what that implicates is an idea that increasingly, rather than listening to the content, the validity of what's being said, we'll use an influence, a judgment, a trait, some feature or signal inherent within that messenger 
and make lots and lots of inferences and determinations about whether or not they warrant us listening to them. So a question that we want to answer in this book is, who do we actually listen to? Who do we listen to in society? And about two and a half years ago, Joe and I started looking at this. And, you know, we're behavioral scientists, we're researchers, so what do we do? We look to the data. We look to decades now of social psychological research and try to determine what are the factors of the most successful messengers that most incline people to want to listen to them. And we found a couple of surprises. So the first thing that we found was we expected that there would be hundreds, if not thousands of researchers that have been studying the universal characteristics and traits of a society's successful messengers. What we actually found was that there were hundreds, if not thousands of researchers that were studying the fine detail of single traits, individual characteristics. But it was close to 40 years ago that the last time that a group of researchers had taken a kind of holistic view, a, a universal view of what a successful messenger. What are the characteristics that most inclined audiences to listen to messengers most of the time? So it kind of surprised us that it's been 40 years since anyone's actually looked at this in any detail. Uh, so we did. And what we find is that we've largely concluded that in society there are two types of messenger, broadly. Uh, there are hard messengers and there are soft messengers. Um, we'll make a distinction between the two and then we'll delve into a little bit of the detail about each of them in turn. Hard messengers are able to get their message heard. They are able to communicate successfully with their audience because they send some signal in advance of their status over their audience. Their audience look to their elevated position and status and make inferences as a result about whether or not they should believe what is then being communicated to them. In contrast, the soft messenger doesn't seek to elevate their status over an audience. Instead, what they seek to do is signal some connectedness with their audience. And they're able to do this in a number of ways that signal their benevolence, signal their connectedness. Um, and that inclines audiences to potentially listen to more. So let's just talk a little bit about each of these in turn, perhaps give you a, one or two examples, some, some of the research, some of the disturbing and unnerving research. Uh, We'll go for maybe another 10 minutes or so, and then we'll uh, wait for questions. How's that sound? Good? How are we doing so far? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So let's talk about these hard traits. Hard messengers seek to deliver their message effectively by first communicating that they have status. Our research suggests that they do that in one of four ways. They signal their socioeconomic position to their audience. They signal their competence. They signal their dominance, or they signal all their signs of their attractiveness. Socioeconomic position is essentially the scientist's way of saying rich and famous people. As much as we may not like to admit it, those in society that have elevated positions, elevated richness, elevated fame, command attention. We're more inclined to listen to them in certain contexts. Largely because there's this feeling that we all likely buy into of a just world. 
You know, if someone has reached that elevated status in life, there's probably a good rationale for why they have. They probably deserve to. They've worked hard. They've got good skills. They've been able to effectively earn their way to that position. And as a result, we listen to them more. Okay. This isn't necessarily always a good thing. In the book, we talk about one example of a Cantonese pop star who, on WhatsApp, claimed, without any evidence whatsoever, that the people that received the flu vaccine, 90% of them would catch the flu. And the disturbing thing was that their message was warmly embraced and considered credible by an audience of their followers out there. So just because people have this elevated status, it doesn't necessarily mean it is a good thing, but it's an efficient shortcut to determine whether we should listen to others. So is competence. When we see a signal of someone's skill or expertise, or we perceive them in some way to have some competence, that signals to, their, to us audiences that they have some instrumental value that they can offer us. Again, this isn't always a good thing. Perceived competence can lead to some quite strange cases, some quite strange medical cases. One of the things that Joe and I were able to discover during the course of this research was an interesting journal started in 1975, Hospital Pharmacist, published in the US. They had a column in each of their issues where medical professionals could write in and account for some medical error, some misjudgment that had actually been made in their hospital anonymously. The idea being that, as a result, others could benefit from this mistake, you know, add it to their list of things to avoid, and so therefore share, in this case, worse practice so it wouldn't be replicated. And our eyes clearly lit up when we saw one column with uh, the title, The Strange Case of Rectal Earache. Happened on an orthopedic ward in the hospital. Uh, the patient concerned is complaining of middle ear pain in their middle ear. The duty nurse rightfully calls the duty doctor. The duty doctor comes, examines the patient, uh, inserts an otoscope into the patient's ear, indeed sees that there is evidence of an inflamed middle ear, and prescribes some anti-inflammatory eardrops. Does anything about that strike you as odd? No. Absolutely not. Except for the way that the physician wrote the prescription on the patient's notes. Place three drops in the right, but instead of actually writing the word right, R-I-G-H-T, the medical abbreviation for right, by the way, anybody know? Capital <laughs> R. <coughs> Place three drops in patients are here. <laughs> the nurse sees the prescription pad. You had it ten minutes ago. Yeah. Goes <laughs> to the medicine cabinet, draws up the drops, goes back to the patient, who is duly asked to adopt the position, and inserts three anti-inflammatory eardrops into a gentleman's rear to cure his inflamed ear. Makes no sense whatsoever. But... As my long-term colleague, the great social psychologist Bob Cialdini, aptly said, 
In many cases where a competent agent speaks, what would otherwise make sense becomes an Briefly, dominance is the third of our hard traits. Dominant messengers seek to command their audiences. They're not interested in connecting. They're not interested necessarily in evidence. They are primarily interested in winning. What's really interesting and perhaps disturbing about these dispositionally dominant messengers is, I mean, we could ask, why in a society like ours would we want to listen to a dominant messenger? I mean, it's not like we're in the caves anymore, in the Stone Age, where we need strong, muscly-type dominant characters to lead us. We don't necessarily need that anymore. But here's the rub. From a very early age, deeply installed in all of us, is this idea that to the winner goes the spoils. Toddlers, research shows, as young as 10 months old, register surprise and shock when they see, for example, cartoons where one dominant character is beaten by a less dominant one. They express shock and surprise. This is how deeply ingrained this dominant effect is. And one of the things that we actually know in terms of the contexts in which people are most inclined to listen to dominant leaders, dominant messengers, are in times of strife, in times of conflict, in times of uncertainty. Make no mistake, the dominant leaders that we have in society fuel environments of crises to serve their own messenger style. No surprise that these dominant messengers are eliciting crises talking about the threat, the fear that we all live in, if they are not voted in against office. They are essentially creating their own context where their dispositionally dominant characters typically thrive. And finally, the fourth hard trait is attractiveness. Those of us that are born genetically blessed are afforded an advantage in life. The physical attractiveness. Physically attractive people typically earn more than their average-looking peers. Some estimates by economists, 10 to 15% more over the course of a lifetime, which is about the same as the discrepancy that we find in things like gender and um, cultural upbringing as well, and race in that instance. We call it the beauty premium in that instance. These are our four hard traits. If, as an audience, We'll see one or more of these traits. There seems to be some inference, some often quick and automatic response that we <coughs> need to <coughs> these types of hard messengers. But you don't have to be a hard messenger in order to be listened to. Okay? You can actually be a soft messenger as well. And the soft messengers are characterized by their ability to form some sort of connectedness with their audience. Now, this chap behind me probably doesn't strike you at first glance as being a soft messenger. Grigory Rasputin was considered uh, quite a poisonous character. Uh, the effect that he actually had on the Russian Tsar and the kingdom uh, at his, the time of his life uh, was largely considered to be pernicious and highly destructive. And so when graduate students were given a three-page account of his life, and asked then in groups to determine how likeable this chap was, it will surprise none of you in the room, I'm sure, to know that he's largely disliked, 
and most people considered him to be an unworthy character. Except for one group of graduate students, who the researchers craftily arranged for them to find out that despite all his poor behaviour, his character over the years, they actually shared something in common with him. They shared a birthday. When they were informed that they happened to share the same birthday as this particular chap here, their view of him softened somewhat. Okay, they didn't necessarily start to like him. What was interesting was their evaluations of him softened. That connectedness, even that seemingly irrelevant connectedness of a shared birthday led them to soften their opinion of one of history's most notorious characters. That, I think, is the, the, it speaks to the quality and the power of the messenger who is able to connect with their audience. They do it in four ways. Uh, messengers that exude warmth. Uh, messengers that are able to communicate some form of vulnerability. Messengers who are seen as trustworthy. And messages who are seen as charismatic uh, largely form these four soft traits of ours. Warmth is the idea that uh, if we see a messenger who is largely positive, uh, provides some positive regard, is able to show similarities to their audience, we may be inclined to listen to them more. Vulnerability is the idea that sometimes if a communicator is able to signal some vulnerability they have, if they wear their heart on their sleeve, if they're able to demonstrate some sort of weakness, position of weakness that they actually have, that will often incline an audience to listen to them more. Those of you that have perhaps looked at any of the research in terms of charitable giving will recognize this idea that you know, a good example of a vulnerable messenger is what we call the identifiable victim, that single individual that we can paint a picture of. It was Joseph Stalin, wasn't it, that said that the, the death of one soldier would be a tragedy, but the death of a million is simply a statistic. It speaks to that vulnerability. Actually, interestingly, um, that's raised concerns in some policy circles about our leaders and what they might do if they were ever put in a position where they might have to unleash weaponry on another country. You know, the idea that the impact would affect thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of people, rather than single individual victims, might desensitize them to the enormity of that particular act. In fact, there was one scholar that we found that suggested a rather novel way uh, to consider the dilemma that a president, for example, might find themselves in. Um, the president would have a young man follow him around um, uh, who would carry the nuclear codes with him. Not in a briefcase, though, but in a little capsule inserted into his heart. The idea being, then, that if the president was going to then push the button and perhaps unleash uh, horrific consequences on tens of thousands of people, he would be required to kill one identifiable victim first in order to access his ability to kill tens of thousands. This uh, scholar apparently suggested this idea to the uh, Department of Defense in the US. Um, 
his response was interesting. Uh, he said, that's a horrific idea. If we did that, the president might never push the button. <laughs> trustworthiness is our third soft effect. Um, trustworthiness is, there are two types essentially of trustworthiness. Uh, we can trust people because we see them as competent. You know, in a nod to those players on rugby and cricket fields that consistently catch the ball, we call them a safe pair of hands. Okay? But there's also an integrity-based element to trust as well. An audience's ability to predict that messenger will come through on their promises, will align and be consistent with group norms. And here's something interesting that we actually find, is that very, very often we confuse truth and trust. They're not the same thing. In fact, actually, we find evidence that suggests that in certain circumstances, certain leaders can hawk lies. They can tell dishonest truths. They can deceive. And in some circumstances, their trust actually goes up, not down. Because what they're essentially doing is they are lying to the approved norms of their group. And in fact, actually, in those contexts, they actually buy group credits for future mistakes or malfeasances that they actually make. Really good example, in 2013 in the United States, over 70% of white evangelists, heavily Republican, answered to the survey question that they thought it was incredibly important that their leader held the highest moral standards and ethical practices. The week end of the 2016 inauguration, that figure fell to 30%. Less than four years, the approval of morals went from 70% to 30%. On the basis of trust in that instance, their ability, what is his ability to predict the future character of a messenger. And finally, charisma. Charisma is defined as this ability for a messenger to convey some compelling vision, something that an audience can cohesively get behind, <coughs> some compelling vision. They do this with metaphors, they do this with what psychologists call surgency, that positive direction that all and one can look towards. They also, interestingly, use typically about twice as many hand gestures as other communicators. In fact, uh, we found studies that show that um, presenters on TED talks who are presenting on the same subject, those that use about twice as many hand gestures as their less charismatic peers, typically get about twice as many views and are rated as significantly more effective presenters than someone that's presenting the exact same message that doesn't use those surgeon type of hand gestures. So there we have it. Eight characteristics that we find are universal cues that we all use to determine whether or not we should not necessarily listen to people, but certainly pay attention such that the likelihood that their message won't go on deaf ears rises. The implication, of course, is that if we do listen more, there are perhaps 
chances that we come to believe what is being said more, regardless of its truth or wisdom. And if we start to believe these messages more, is there perhaps an outcome where we are being influenced to become different people? <clears throat> so, you might be thinking, what sort of messenger am I? Okay? I'm not being you. Okay? And the answer is, um, you can find out. You can find out for free. Uh, you can go to messages.com, follow the link, and uh, there's a neat little scientific-based test that will essentially give you feedback about what your preferred messenger trait is. Um, and maybe you can share it with your friends over a drink afterwards. Um, but uh, that was essentially the uh, end of what I actually had to say about the research itself to set a context for these messenger traits and what we've actually found. Um, so perhaps I'll shut up now and, um, and back to you, Paul, if I may. Yes, you may. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So um, we will open the f um, questions up to the floor in a second, but I'm going to take the chair's privilege first and ask a couple myself. Um, <coughs> first of all, I just wanted, wanted to um, get some clarification of the distinction between the hard and soft messengers, because the presentation suggested that they were almost like mutually exclusive. I just wanted to get a sense of how much they're complementary or substitutable for one another. And maybe in the context of charisma, because it kind of felt like it could be on either of those lists. So I kind of wanted to get a sense of the boundaries between them. And... Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really good opening question. And um, <clears throat> it's one where we actually considered putting it in either. Because the research shows that charismatic people um, are able to lead. They are seen as having gravitas. And they are essentially the leader of this collective vision that they put forward. Um, but it binds people together and they are seen as part of the group. Um, so essentially, they, they embody both sides. There's a yin and a yang to these messenger traits. And those who can essentially you know, come across as high status while also expressing warmth and connecting their, with their group and connecting their group are seen as charismatic. Now, mostly we focus on messenger traits as in how, how you make inferences and try to avoid message characteristics. But in the Charisma chapter as well, we do go into a few. And as Steve mentioned, they're very um, good articulators. They use metaphors and other linguistic devices like that. Um, and you can actually see in the US presidents, those that use more metaphors in their inaugural speeches tended to get voted in for longer and do better in their presidency, which is quite amazing. Um, so, yeah, I think it does fit into both. Is, uh, but uh, otherwise, we would have had five and three. So You can't have five and three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, that's a very good reason of having four and four. But in terms of the relationship between the hard and soft, I mean, to what degree do you see them as complements or substitutes for one another? I mean, do I, do I specialise in being a hard messenger at the expense of a soft one? Do I have mm. some balance between them? How, does it, how, how would I kind of optimise being mm. an effective messenger? Yeah, certainly context is important. So Context matters, yeah, we know. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> I your line. But no, seriously, I think if you're in a kind of leadership role, you're trying to inspire confidence in others, you need to seem confident. And if you are, you know, talking to a friend who's just broken up with their partner, then you're not going to have that same kind of demeanor. Um, and that's where a softer characteristic or style is going to kind of be more effective. And I, I think it's true in many situations you can think of, um, caring professions we typically associate as softer messengers, um, and for good reason. It's, it's a, a role in which that helps. Um, 
Yeah, okay. But I think, that, I mean, yeah. no, what's interesting um, is you're exactly right. I mean, the, the, this context matters, and it matters a hell of a lot. And you even see that in um, recruitment of executives in organizations. So, you know, those organizations that perhaps are going through some turmoil, you know, perhaps their stock price has reduced, there are perhaps lower levels of psychological safety amongst their staff. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, an uncertainty um, about the, uh, the health of the organization. Boards are disproportionately more likely to appoint a hard, dominant type of executive in those roles. But that, exa- that exact same organization, if things are going well, you know, the outlook is rosy, you know, staff are feeling psychologically safe, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a clear signed-up plan of action that that, that organisation is going in, that same board in that different context will be disproportionately more likely to uh, appoint a much more connected, softer messenger in that that regard. So even in large-scale, you know, high-stakes appointments like chief execs, this context matter uh, aspect... So you you would think a large part of that is unconscious, right? Yeah. That that these um, influences um, and those effects operate on us in ways that we're largely unaware of? I think so, and I think the evidence that they, we are so largely unaware of them is the idea that when we see one of them, we are able to quickly infer that someone has all sorts of other skills that have nothing to do with that initial trait that we actually saw. I mean, one of the examples that, that I do like, uh, here in the 1980s, the, the government are tasked with a question um, what, uh, who would be the best messenger to disseminate information about what to do in a nuclear fallout if, God forbid, Russia ever pushed the button? Okay? Now, you can think of all sorts of different people that would be highly competent and skilled to actually do that. But actually, the two people that they actually picked were Kevin Keegan and Ian Botham. <laughs> okay, so at the time, I recognised most of the people in the room were going... They have no idea they? who Kevin Keegan um, and Ian Botham are. Captain of the England football team and the guy who single-handedly battered the Australians in the ashes six months previously. Now, they have absolutely no knowledge of... Uh, you know, what to do in the case of a nuclear attack. They have no training in what to do in the case of some public, uh, you know, disorder. But they're recognised... They did a pretty good job winning that cup final the other day. So it's very easy then unconsciously to infer that they're probably going to be quite skilled at doing other things as well. That classic halo effect. Brilliant. Thank you. I've got a couple more questions, but I'm going to open up to the audience and then come back in again shortly. So um, there are roving mics that will come to you, so please wait until you you have a mic in your hand. And um, we... We do have a fair amount of time, but we're going to have lots of hands, so please try to keep your questions succinct. Wherever you want to go. Yeah, you choose. You choose. You can see the hands. Pick a hand. There's lots of them up already. Then I don't get blamed when you don't get asked, when you don't get asked to see. Um, on the basis of the eight traits you described, um, which ones do you think were best deployed by the Leave campaign um, in Brexit, and which ones could the Remain campaign have used better to influence the result? Good question. So, um, yeah, I, I, you were pound. You said it was going to be the first. I said it was going to be the second question. <laughs> I thought Brexit would be number two question. <laughs> <laughs> Joke. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> well, actually, I'm very happy to answer it because we have data on exactly that. So Steve and I have actually been um, collecting data on how leavers and remainers rate the current politicians who are being put forward for prime minister um, on each of these eight traits. And we find quite a remarkable pattern, which is that Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, so the real Leave campaigners, um, are rated in a very similar style. So they are high on the socioeconomic position, dominance. Um, and then it really varies between, um, oh, sorry, and charisma is the other one. Um, and then it varies depending on whether you're leave or remain. So, of course, remainers see them as highly incompetent <laughs> and not at all trustworthy, whereas leave is the opposite. Um, but then you get this interesting other effect with... Um, so Jeremy Corbyn is not actually doing too well in our data with either group. But one person does stand out in the remain side, and that's Caroline Lucas. Um, who we were actually debating whether or not to even include, but it's, what, what I find really interesting is that um, she embodies this kind of softer side. She's rated very highly on charisma, um, but low on dominance and high on kind of warmth and trustworthiness um, by remainers. And actually, leavers aren't that averse to her either from our data, which is admittedly a small sample size, but um, I definitely think that there is a divide, and we, you, you see that in past research as well, where um, depending on the listener's ideology, they favor different messengers too. So those on the right tend to go more for dominant, um, hard messengers, and those on the left for warmer, softer. Cool, thank you. Thank you very much for your question and the answers. Um, uh, should we go to the back? Where's the, where, are we, is, we, do we just have one mic? Oh, there's another mic. Yeah, run to the back. Run. Let's go. Let's take some, let's take some questions from the back. Um, uh, there's a hand in the middle here. Yeah, the guy in the middle there. Perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Um, my question relates to the first question, really. I, I don't understand what's the significance of and why did you need to classify these different characteristics in, into two camps, soft and hard. Is it because you saw a bunch of people and you thought, okay, we can, you know, they have these characteristics, these four characteristics, therefore they're more soft and they're more hard, so it's useful to analyze. Or is it because you thought this is how you are you become more persuasive you have these four characteristics at one given time mm. uh, well I wouldn't say it was because we kind of you know went down to the pub and chatted about it actually so there's loads of kind of research on stereotypes and they have these two-factor models so Susan Fisk um, is a professor at Princeton in social psychology and uh, it comes up a lot you get these these hard and soft but in various forms so there's a bunch of two-factor models. Another one in leadership is, uh, you know, the routes to status um, in their model is prestige and dominance. And again, it's kind of a hard, soft um, approach. So we were very inspired by that. And, and in political science, too, you have these kind of uh, split models with kind of warm and trustworthy on one side and powerful and confident and competent on the other side. So it seems to be a recurring theme in many different disciplines. And I think we are kind of speaking to that as well. Um, with a slightly broader model and for a slightly different topic. Um, so I, I guess the answer is I guess we took a di real data-driven approach and you looked at what the existing research out there was. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for the question and answer. Okay, where should we go? Uh, in the middle, over to the side, uh, here. For like Michael Barrymore, for those that can remember, top, middle, or bottom. <laughs> Hi, I was just wondering what the... Um, gender impact is on the 
kind of messenger characterization. Of, of the characteristics of the messenger or of the person listening to the messenger? Yeah, well, you know, there's been kind of research showing that people are less yeah. likely to see women as competent, less likely to see women as dominant. Right, okay, so um, the messenger. So that right. kind of yeah. impact. With the caveat. Of course. <laughs> yeah. No, so we actually we ask this a lot, and um, we have to always caveat by saying we are the worst messengers to be talking about this as two white males. Um, it's ironic in a sense that um, you know people li listen to that message differently because uh, of who we are. But I think because you know we have written the book and it's a hot topic and plays right into this and we, and we do have something to say then we would like to kind of give an answer anyway um, and I, yeah, I think that um, you know, we, don't, we tend not to talk about these kind of surface level um, characteristics that people have typically focused on when looking at who we listen to and these kind of um, categorize, social categorizations I guess um, we tend to look at the kind of deeper psychological level and actually they play out in the gender context where if you really look at what's going on when you make gender stereotypes, it is a difference in how people perceive uh, women and men on warmth and dominance in particular. And actually, competence has changed over time. So a recent meta-analysis uh, by Alice Eagley showed that in the last 30 or 40 years, women have gone from being seen as much less competent than men to now being seen as equal, if not more competent than men. Um, but the differences that have remained are that men are seen as more dominant or agentic, so more kind of aggressive, confident, brash, assertive, and women as more um, socially harmonious um, and emotionally sensitive. And I think that is having a real effect on uh, how people respond to um, the different genders. Because if you have that stereotype in mind, um, it's gonna, like we say, kind of fit, you're gonna pick the context of which one you think suits better for what message. Excellent, thank you. Um, come down here, shall we? Let's go to the, let's go in the middle here, the third row. Going on from gender, can we talk about age? I'm particularly <laughs> interested in older men and say older. <laughs> of course I am. Of course I am. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> always, <laughs> always, of course, always, um, never younger men, um, just for the record. Um, I'm particularly interested in older men who are politicians and the fact that we might have, yes, okay, all right, we've got the, we got the joke. Um, particularly, let's take the uh, US political scene where um, elderly statesmen, you think about Joe Biden and other people like that who are still seen to be incredibly competent. And in later age, do you, did you look at age at all, obviously for women as well, but I'm very interested whether you get the messenger effect, does it increase with age? Mm -hmm. So it does, but um, it's curvilinear. So, you know, the, the, the typical high-status person is a kind of middle-aged, tall male. Um, and then once you start getting into the elderly category, it actually decreases in competence and rises in kind of softer, warmer characteristics. Um, but I, I mean, probably they're on the cusp, this kind of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, where in five to ten years they would be seen... Be dead. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> That changes their messenger status. But Joe Biden, <laughs> I, I actually think Joe Biden has actually 
he's over the cusp. And, you know, it's picked up a lot in the media that he is fumbling his words. He's not as sharp as he used to be. Um, he, he said the other day in the Democratic debate, you need to play kids the record player more often and things like that. And people are thinking, how out of touch? And you're not quite with it anymore, are you? So can I, can I ask another question about, so you, you talk about this evidence. Can you say something about the outcomes that you're looking at in this evidence? So when you say these messengers are more or less effective, what kind of, what, what kind of outcomes is it? Is it in, you know, observing behavioural responses to these people? Is it in attitudinal research? What, where does it come from? What, what, what sort of evidence? Yeah, I think it's a real mix, but um, we do definitely try and kind of focus on behavioural stuff, which I guess you'll be happy about. Um, and so the, the kind of main ones that come to mind are recruitment and court cases where it's quite easy to have a real kind of solid outcome. So recruitment, for example, you can send thousands of CVs out and you make small changes like yeah. attaching an attractive picture. Yeah. Um, and then you just look at how many callbacks they get and you see huge effects. Yeah. Um, but it's a real mix. And I mean, yeah, we, we've got cognitive neuroscience studies in there which are very much not of the, the real-world behavioural stuff that you'll like, and then we do have some that you'd be more your thing, I guess. <laughs> there are some interesting kind of, you know, um, attitudinal type of uh, examples as well. So, you know, we, we, we cite a number of studies where you, you can show pictures of, of CEOs, or pictures in, in this instance, in one study I'm thinking of, of, of politicians that actually ran in a political election, um, and you show these pictures to individuals that couldn't possibly know who these individuals are and simply ask them, just based on this uh, two or three second you know, glance of their image, who looks like they were likely to have won the election. And the correlation is pretty strong, actually. Um, so, so people from other countries that don't know these politicians can predict far better than chance just on the basis of a, an image who is going to be the winner. Now, that sounds kind of surprising. Um, the really surprising thing is, is that some of the people that are shown these pictures are school children. Mm. So, again, you know, it kind of speaks to the, um, the often reliance that we actually have on these, these snap judgments when we just, you know, we, we look at an image, we make lots of inferences about the character of that person, whether they're likely to be voted for, would they make a good CEO, would they make a good partner, these kind of things, just based on that. It's kind of pretty stunning. Mm. It is, it is. Let's take some more, let's take some more questions. Uh, where are so we there's go? a gentleman just in, in the front there. Uh, hand excuse, hand excuse, me. excuse me. No, it's just, <laughs> no. Uh, sorry. Excuse me. You don't get to choose. Okay. Who do, who do you want to choose? <laughs> well, it's just the gentleman in the front there, just, yep, there we go. just to your left. Yeah, yeah. He's had his hand up for a while. I, you caught my eye. Um, my name is Paul Hudson. Um, I'm 81 years old, so the previous question, I don't know whether I'm too young, in fact, I'm very Thank you very much for your talk. Obviously, you haven't got much time to cover much of the content of the book, but I, I felt that you um, might have given a little bit more emphasis to the why in the subtitle of your book. Um, I was uh, attending a Gresham lecture a couple of nights ago given by a professor of psychology, and he illustrated his talk about the nature of the topic and about the nature of the audience. And in particular, he and some of his colleagues have done a survey on people's attitudes to whether they believe in uh, climate changing and the world generally getting warmer or not. Mm. 
And what was crucial uh, it, in their uh, examination of these responses was that people who of a scientific or philosophical bent of mind were inclined to be convinced by the arguments. Um, otherwise, uh, the people who didn't believe in climate change tended to be people who were very optimistic without any giving any reasons. For example, it'll all work out in the end. And this, of course, is typified by people like um, Boris Johnson, to some extent President Trump, who both have a reputation for um, putting their mouths into gear before engaging their brains. Well, no, I, I, no, I, I accept that. I mean, so the why in, in this set of research in this book is, speaks to the fact that sometimes we're asked to answer questions that we couldn't possibly know the answer to. You know, will Brexit be good for the UK? Who would make a good president? Is this a good school for my children? Is it not? Should I study this subject? Should I study that? These are incredibly difficult questions to, to answer. And when we're not in a position to predict the future or you know, there's questionable evidence, then we'll often use these traits as kind of proxies to decide who to believe. That, that's the why in this. Yeah, good, thank you. Where are we going next? Um, there's a hand down the front here. It's been very uh, prominent for a while. Let's, uh, let's uh, you have a prominent hand, by the way. That's what I, was... I don't know what that means. Okay. I'd just like to know what you think of the effect of familiarity in this process. So we're all inclined to trust and believe a person who we know personally and uh, like in particular, rather than, say, uh, an expert who is more remote, we don't know personally, even though we know they're better qualified to, yeah. to address the question we want an answer to. Yeah. And, and also, certain people in that position have an ability to make, them, make us think that we know them as well. Yeah. And that is a very sort of powerful uh, uh, weapon for a messenger to have. Sure. And with the rise of social media as well, that, that's becoming even more powerful. You know, there's these sort of remote presidents and can sort of actually step into people's living room and be, living room and be a sort of a friend almost, or like yeah. try and make us believe they are anyway. Yeah. So, I was gonna say, so, so that was a question I was going to ask. So we, as you know, we wrote a Mindspace report. I was good, about to say, yeah. And so we had um, we, we, what we thought were three main effects of yeah. messengers, expertise, trust, and similarity. And yeah. the expertise and trust is in there. Yeah. Um, how, how does the similarity play into the... Well, I think the similarity fits into the warmth aspect. But, I, I mean, essentially, the, the, you know, the, the question that I think I'm hearing uh, being asked here, which um, I'll start to answer, and then I should defer to Joe, because he actually led the study was in those instances where you have a choice of listening to someone who has expertise or someone who has that similarity or familiarity, um, you know, if, if, if that's a, a boxing match of sorts, of messengers, what, what actually plays out and, and, and who triumphs in that instance? And shall I make a start and then, or do you want to go straight into it? Oh. Yeah, okay, so um, imagine a situation, you, uh, you, you go into a, a, a laboratory and you see a screen, and on the screen is, is a shape, okay? Uh, it's an unfamiliar shape to you, uh, and there's a question that comes up, and the question is, is this a BLAP, B-L-A-P? Um, it's a made-up word, and it's a simple yes-no game, you know? It's a coin flip, 
Okay, and if you get it right, you might win. If you get it wrong, you'll lose. But you know, if you do the round 10 times, you're going to largely come out as, as an average. Um, and then you're informed that there are, or you find out there are other people playing the game that are essentially experts. Okay? They, you know, instead of getting the question right 50% of the time, the coin flip, they get the question right 80% of the time. So what do you do? Well, the obvious thing to do is to delay your response for a second or two, follow them, follow the expert. And that's what largely people do. But then you add an interesting twist, and perhaps this is where you should take over, I think, and, and add this similarity-familiarity twist to, yeah, to, yeah. to so, experimental setup. <laughs> so while they're answering these questions about blaps and seeing people, other people answering them, they're also shown political questions. So we ask them things like, um, if, uh, if there was a wall built along the southern border of the US, would that reduce violent crime? And they give their response, and then they see the other person's response. And we programmed the algorithms to um, essentially give them the same response or a different response 80% of the time. So if I say, no, I don't think it would reduce violent crime, I'd see one person agreeing with me 80% of the time, I'd see an another person disagreeing with me 80% of the time. And what we did was we kind of combined the two. So you had somebody who was very accurate at the task and similar, and people like that one a lot. And then you have somebody who's very accurate at the task but dissimilar to them politically, and they like them a lot less. But what was kind of interesting was that somebody who was not good at the task, but similar to them politically, was rated kind of favorably, and in fact more favorably than the one who was more accurate but dissimilar to them politically. So more favorably in terms of then you choosing what they chose. Yeah, so they would choose so to hear their advice. Behavioral responses, yeah. You follow the familiar person, and you almost pay a price for being wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, actually, what we find is in that instance, so we, we measured their perceptions of these people's competence and similarity. And they could kind of guess which ones were similar to them yeah. and which ones were dissimilar. But then that interfered with their ability to assess competence. So actually, they thought, even though they'd been presented with all the evidence they needed to know who was the expert in the room, that those who shared their political views were more competent than they actually were, and those who disagreed were less competent than they actually were. Um, it's cool. Yeah. And unnerving. <laughs> yes, and I, mean, I suppose it raises the question about why, you know, I mean, there must be, there must be, we, we, would, we would suppose that there's some good reason for being stupid. <laughs> right? I mean, there would be some evolutionary advantage to it, there would be some mm historical basis on which that yeah. would generally get you the right answer rather than the wrong one, right? Yeah. So, I mean, do you have any kind of sense of where, what that, yeah. where that mm -hmm. might come from? Well, yeah, I think a lot of these are clearly uh, evolutionarily adaptive in certain ways, and especially if you consider the kind of context that our ancestors grew up in, cues like physical strength and height kind of make sense as being good indicators of somebody who you should kind of value um, and trust and respond positively to. Um, but I guess in the modern day and age, then they're not always as useful as they once were. Um, yeah, attractive would be the same. Attractiveness would be the same, I think. Although, you know, uh, yeah, because you're, you're not as more likely to live longer and survive yeah. if you're more attractive in today's world, but you were. Um, there's other, you know, other reasons why you might kind of listen to somebody who's very confident, and that is because when you know a lot of stuff and you're very competent, 
you will speak in a more confident tone. But what happens is that you then get people who are just confident regardless. <laughs> um, and they are persuasive because we fall into this general heuristic that if somebody appears confident, we presume they're competent um, and, and yeah. kind of game the system in a way. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Take some more questions. Yeah, you've got a hand right next to you, so let's go for it. Thank you. So um, while I was look, uh, listening to you, I was thinking that me as a listener, not as a messenger, and I was thinking about, okay, which type of messenger do I, am I inclined more to? I would like to know, given the fact that probably I have my own stereotypes or my own biases when I'm looking to a messenger, is there any particular way of me to be more objective when I look to a messenger's message, indeed, and let's say look from another perspective or like getting out from my own stereotypes? Can I do so, or in your view, in the end, my stereotypes will prevail, and I won't be able actually to look at it as objectively as possible? Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So, the answer I'd like to give <laughs> is that um, knowing more about these characteristics and the pervasive effect they can have on our evaluation of what is being said. And that's an important point, because at no point in this book do we ever concern ourselves with what is being said. That's just, just to be clear about this. At no point are we ever saying, you know, is this a good message? We're simply saying, what is the characteristic of the messenger or entity delivering the message? We, you know, regardless of truth, fact, or fiction. So I'd like to be able to say that as a result of perhaps reading the book, understanding these effects more, that you have you know, essentially elevated your position of defense, and that knowing about these things, you're, you're, you're more inclined to you know, put barriers up so that you know, an overly confident messenger doesn't win sway in your mind. Um, but that said, Joe and I both are a little gloomy about that. Um, when you consider that, you know, going back to the, the previous answer about the, some of the evolutionary qualities to these, these traits is they're there for good reason. Yeah. You know, they've, they've helped us survive, they've helped us to grow, they've helped us to prosper. And um, so simply knowing about them, I, I'm not entirely convinced is, is an adequate defense. Um, yeah, but knowing be, about them is a bit more of a defense than not. I would be entirely them. convinced that it's not a good defense, right? I mean, okay. that, that's what I mean. I, I would completely concur with, 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 with everything you said and then emphasize it again mm. because we are so unable to understand those automatic processes. Mm. And, and, actually, and actually, the more arrogant we are about our ability to do that, the more susceptible to them. Uh, we become our, our kind of circumspection about our ability to, yeah. to understand unconscious and automatic biases is actually one way of overcoming them not not greater knowledge and confidence in our abilities exactly. to overcome yeah. them. absolutely um, okay let's go uh, let's go yeah to the left here to the to the lady in the red jumper Hi, uh, my question is about behavioral outcomes as well. I know you have not look, looked into the message effect, but in marketing literature, basically uh, research on persuasion and virality and social contagion places more emphasis on the message more than the messenger. So do you think if we move from listening to believing and becoming, the message would interact highly with the messenger? Yeah, I mean, I mean to be, I, I, for those of you that, that don't know, um, I, I have a long 
uh, history and, and partnership with, with Robert Cialdini, the, the renowned social psychologist, who wrote the book on what to put in the message. You know, uh, how you frame or convey a message that increases people's assent to it. Um, so, I, so, yeah, the, the message from us here is not that the messenger prevails over the message. There are those two components. But one point I would actually make, and it's something that um, I, I don't think I can... No, I, I, I can't think of, unless, Joe, you can help me here, a particular piece of evidence research that would actually support this. But it does seem to me, uh, and I think largely I would expect most people to, to you know, recognize this, is that we are just exposed to more and more messages every single day. Um, the idea that we, from the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment that we retire in the evening, are able to pay attention to all these content-laden messages that are actually delivered to us, however persuasive they may be. And in that instance, probably there's an evolution of message effect there as well. You know, the, the, the more uh, emotively laden messages, uh, messages are, are more likely to be more effective. Um, but often, you know, what we're, we're finding is, is regardless of the message itself, these characteristics, the, the individual, the entity, the platform, the social media network, the news network, whoever it may be that is the message, are increasingly uh, prevalent in our decision-making about what we should and shouldn't believe in that instance. Can you, can you say something about messengers that aren't people? Because it feels like we've had a lot of conversation mm. about people. We have messengers through delivery channels uh, online or through robots or AI or through other... Yeah. Yeah, so there is... Um, there was a recent book called The Human Brand, and actually they applied social psychology about person perception to brands, and actually you can do that. So you see brands much in the same way that you kind of stereotype humans and, and make these same judgments about them. So you have your kind of warm, fluffy brands, and then you have your kind of harder, unlikable, high-status brands. And I think um, Google is really trying to... I think they're a good example of one that has managed so far to do pretty well at staying in the sweet spot, where they're seen as very high-status, um, but also kind of friendly and fluffy and warm. Um, whereas Amazon is the kind of more typical high status but negatively stereotyped one as well, where similar to kind of bankers and lawyers who get a bad rep for you know, earning a lot of money and we don't like them, we feel this kind of envious hostility towards them. Um, I think Amazon is in trouble, even though you know, on the surface they seem very similar. And it's kind of a good question why, and I'm probably not the right person to yeah. answer that. But. The, 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 the social media channel thing is interesting as well. So we found Sinal uh, Aral is probably one of the, the leading researchers from MIT in this, this idea that... So what's interesting about bots is that um, they disseminate fake news, but they disseminate truthful news as well, and there's, there's, there's little distinguish. Um, it's, it's the human-driven uh, platforms that actually disseminate fake news. Um, bots, you'll, you'll, you'll get both in that instance. So it does actually start to, I, I guess, point towards are there considerations towards policy interventions here that might need to take place? You know, should, should there be perhaps advantages from policy perspectives for those platforms, social network sites, news media that are regarded as truthful? Mm. Um, you know, should they appear higher up in, you know, search engines? You know, should we have maybe, you know, in the same way as we have traffic light systems for food to tell us what's good and bad for us and indifferent, you know, could you perhaps do that for these kind of 
um, non-human platforms and entities as well, so that we are, um, you know, being exposed to, you know, information and messages that, you know, have some credibility. Cool. Thank you. Any more? Yeah. Let's go. Uh, let's go. Uh, let's go to the back, um, and then we'll come over this side. Thank you. Um, what you broke up uh, the messengers into hard and soft, and the uh, hard traits like dominance and socioeconomic status and attractiveness are kind of things you're born with. But on the soft side, like you know, being vulnerable or um, you know, being uh, trustworthy, uh, those are more learned behaviours, maybe. Um, so, what are the types of people, maybe on the outliers, who are really effective at being a soft messenger? Like, what are the experiences that lead someone to become really good at that versus uh, more of a a hard messenger? It's a good question. I, and and it's, it has been kind of suggested to us before that it might be this learned trait with the softer things and sort of more ingrained stuff with the, the harder effects. And I think that's partly true because just based on where we read the research, you get all of the kind of dominance and attractiveness research in evolutionary psychology journals. And you get the kind of warmth, <laughs> trustworthiness, and also competence, I guess, but in kind of more social cognitive psychology journals. Um, and I think it does speak to the kind of processes that are going on there. Um, so what, I guess the, the question was, what in your life would make you become more warm and trustworthy? Um, yeah, I think, well, like all these things, it's going to be kind of a mix between genetics and the environment. Um, and, you know, I think we say at the end of the book, you know, personality is kind of relatively stable um, across the lifespan. And, you know, any personality psychologist will know the big five trait agreeableness um, is, is kind of... Uh, relatively stable over the lifespan and kind of linked to these softer sides of traits. That's um, increased a bit with age though, right? Agreeableness? Increases. With age a little bit. Oh yeah? I think so. Okay, I've seen that. I think some of the evidence is, I mean it's weak, weak, yeah. weak, right, right, weak right. effects, but I think uh, a little uh, bit of an increase. Sorry, I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, no, no, no. Uh, uh, I'm curious. That's interesting. There's a kind of like meta answer to that as well, isn't there? It's just so far as, if, you know, whether you're going to essentially turn out to be a softer messenger in life might be determined by who, you, who the messengers were that you actually listened to earlier in life. Yeah. In that instance, so. Yeah. Okay, let's go over this side. Um, pick a hand. Um, <clears throat> hi. Yeah, so I was just wondering, because I see your book, I mean, the title is Who We Listen To, and I see you've been talking a lot about kind of the oral manifestations of messages. But I was more wondering um, if you've done, obviously, any research on this, how these kind of hard and soft messages can apply to more written forms of communication. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So there is one example that I can th that I can think of, and it concerns the uh, the organization's annual report, which is a written document. Um, and I can think of I can think of a couple of studies actually that, that have um, essentially counted up, having reviewed a company's annual reports, the number of references to the CEO or the chairman uh, in, in the report, and the number of pictures of the CEO or the chairman or the, 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 the those. That that strikes me as uh, perhaps a signal or some sign that there's uh, perhaps a couple of dominant characters in there that feel the need to have their their. Their, their face 
published throughout. Um, uh, so, and I, and I think, and again, I'll just need to look at this because I can't recall exactly unless you can help me out here, but um, those studies actually showed that they, they were able to, you know, look at the number of personal references to the leaders in the organization and make inferences about the culture in that organization, the type of leadership style, the type of executives that they would likely elevate and promote to the board in that instance. So okay, there's one example that comes to mind of um, written evidence uh, of, of, of how a messenger trait seeps through into you know, published material. Yeah, I, I think with, if I'm talking about the same study, they, the finding I remember is the size of the CEO picture is correlated with how narcissistic they are. <laughs> <laughs> that as well, yeah. Which I thought was great. <laughs> but, um, I think as well that, you know, language does leak these cues. You know, you can see, like, big emoticons um, and, you know, really excited to see that kind of thing. It kind of screams positivity and warmth. Um, and actually, I have seen some data from, I think they call it computational psycholinguistics, um, which shows that actually there are gender differences there. So women are more likely to use emoticons and exclamation marks, um, and men are more likely to swear and that kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, it's indicative of something about the messenger there, too. So you are making inferences from these kind of signals, I think. Okay, we are, we've got. A, let's come. Let's come to the front here. And this hand has been been up a while. I'm going to take another one, another one from the back of your choice uh, afterwards, and then I think we might start wrapping up. Yeah, um, okay. I think um, I'm, I'm sensing the the heat is yeah. is now starting it's to, it's to really significantly take its toll on us. Okay, on me, um, and and a drink beckons uh, very soon. So let's take another couple of questions. Are there any examples that you can share um, for the average person to become a better messenger tomorrow, maybe, or also in the long term? <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give you one. Um, it, it refers to the trait of competence, <clears throat> and it, uh, I can cite actual a, a, a small-scale uh, fields uh, experiment that, that, that I, I led here in London, um, and it concerns the the impact of having your expertise introduced by someone else, a third party, in the moment before you make a suggestion. And I want to give you an example, because um, how many of you go to meetings just out of interest and have that experience? You know when you sit in a meeting full of strangers and there's like six or eight or ten or twelve people in the, in the same, and someone turns around and says, well, let's start the meeting by going around and introducing ourselves. You've had that experience, yeah? The worst possible start to a meeting. It's a ridiculous way to start a meeting if you think about it logically. So the first is you're required to now tell a group of strangers the reason why you're in a meeting room and why you might be better than them. <laughs> Awkward. Okay. So invariably what people do is they largely introduce themselves in a way that provides no more information than what could be reliably presented on a business card. Hi, I'm Paul from IT. You know, that's what you're going to get. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, it doesn't really matter what you say because no one's listening. And the reason that no one's listening is, if you know that you have to... There's a thing in psychology called the next-in-line effect. Essentially, it goes something like this. If you know that you're about to perform, your internal focus is so concentrated on what you are about to say that you are oblivious to everything else that's actually going on in the room. So you're not listening to, to anyone anyway in that instance. 
So for those two reasons, it's a ridiculous thing. The recommendation, and back to how you can improve your and elevate your influence in this instance, is the person in the room who calls the meeting or one of your sponsors, whoever it may be, should do the job of introducing the person in the room and why they are an expert for a couple of reasons. The first is all those barriers of having to elevate your own competence go away. It's easier when it comes from someone else. Um, the second thing is it's actually kind of interestingly, it's a good leadership quality because you're actually providing labels for people to live up to. You know, if I say that this person in my team is an incredibly qualified, well-experienced individual that's got you know, great qualities to bring to this particular program and project, I'm, I'm largely setting him or her up for actually wow. delivering on oh, that. No, sorry. <laughs> in that instance. So my advice would be find an advocate, find someone that's willing to toot your horn for you. Um, it's incredibly important. And I think that's something that can be done legitimately, can be done ethically, it's entirely truthful. And, it, and in our studies that we actually showed, we even found that we could boost the credibility of estate agents by doing this. So what more evidence do you need? Uh, by someone else doing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And interestingly, so. the person in the study happened to be the person that answered the phone. Yeah. So they arguably had something to gain from the interaction as well. Yeah. So if we can do that for real estate agents, there you go. Okay. So my name is Yihan. Thank you for your talk. So insofar, we've where are we? Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Hello. Sorry. Hello. Yeah. 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 Got you. So insofar, we have assumed the messengers to be human beings. So what are the implications of your research for the design of voice interface like Alexa and Siri? Oh, for Siri. Yeah. Well, no one ends a conversation with Siri with "You take care now," do they? Um, so there's the, the warmth aspect in that instance actually goes, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that would be, um, you know, I guess the question is, do you want your kind of Siri or home automated robots to kind of signal these traits? Like, do you want a nice warm voice? Or <laughs> and probably people do. Um, I mean, these, uh, you know, I, from what limited research I've seen on that. Um, you know, those, those kind of home automation systems that have a nice calming voice are actually favored more. Again, you're not going to like it. It's attitudinal research <laughs> with self-report <laughs> ratings. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm sorry I can't answer more on that one, but it's just, yeah, slightly outside my field. It may be a gap. It may be a gap. And it may be that some of these qualities um, can be applied to debiasing other you know, instances like recruitment you know, biases you know, are, are likely to be more inclined and favorable to an attractive candidate. You know, we could probably use some of these technologies in that instance to, to debias some of the recruitment processes. But more, Brilliant. more research is needed, I guess. More research is needed. What a lovely place to finish in an academic <laughs> institution. <laughs> more research is needed. I love that. You're welcome. That's just a, it speaks to my heart so much. So, um, Listen, thank you. First of all, thank you, the audience, so much for having been amazing. Your questions were succinct as I asked and really quite, um, quite interesting in the American way of saying that. Um, Steve and Joe, thank you so much for this evening. I will reiterate again, there are books on sale outside. They will be signing them. Um, the Perfect Messengers for the Messengers book. And then there is a drinks reception for those that wish to stick around. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Steve and Joe. Thank you.